you're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 3. We are in a series that we've entitled Nailing the Gospel. Our desire in this series is to bring theological precision to the terms of the gospel. And we are learning a little theology, we're learning a little history, a little biography, and in order to do all that, we're actually having to learn some new vocabulary. And uh, we're looking at a word that occurs over and over, especially through the first five chapters of the book of Romans. That word is justification. I want you to see it again here in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 28. We've read this verse before, but notice what it says. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And in that one verse, the apostle Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, nails the gospel. The problem with all of us is that we all stand condemned before a holy God. We are all sinners by nature and by choice. We've ignored God. We've rebelled against God. We've tried to be God, and God takes that very seriously. As a result of our sin, we stand before God as guilty criminals in the courtroom of of God. We are hopelessly and helplessly in bondage to sin. And until or unless God acts by his grace to set us free, we are eternally condemned forever to hell. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to receive a little encouragement? Well, this is what the scripture teaches. And so in order to understand the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news. And we've been looking at this act of justification, which is the legal declaration of God, whereby he thinks of our sins as belonging to Christ and thinks of Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And so we have learned that scripture alone defines justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And about 500 years ago, the church had kind of lost that theological precision and God used uh, some reformers to bring back the heart of the gospel that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. So that brings us to this question. If we looked at grace last week and the free gift of God, the question is this, how do you access God's grace? Who receives God's grace? Who gets saving grace? And that brings us this morning to what we call sola fide, those Latin terms that became the five solas of the Reformation, whereby we understand justification. Sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. And today we're talking about sola fide, by faith alone. So grace requires a response from the human heart. And that response is saving faith, sola fide. 
And so we're going to look at that here this morning. And so this morning, let's just kind of start diving into it. We're going to look at three points this morning. The first is this. Faith alone grants access to God's grace. Faith alone grants access to God's grace. Not everybody gets God's grace. Only those who receive God's grace through faith. Skip over here to Romans chapter 5, if you would. Let the eyes of your head fall on the pages of God's word. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's our term, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Are you a believer? How many believers in the room? Raise your hand if you're a believer. Look at these believers. You crazy people up at 8 o'clock in the morning scraping yourself out of bed. Don't you know that all the unbelievers are sleeping in this morning? What makes a believer believe? It is his faith that is granted to him as a gracious gift by God. Now, there is an important understanding. We as English-speaking people can lose a sense of the theological precision of what the Bible calls faith. When the Bible talks about faith, it is much more about what you believe on than what you believe in. Now, it's important that you believe in God. It's important that you believe in the existence of God. But do you understand that is not what we're talking about this morning? Believing in God is a prerequisite for believing on Christ by faith. And so when we talk about faith, again, we need some theological precision. Really better terms in the English language for the faith that we're talking about is trust, reliance, dependence upon. About 12 hours ago, I was actually in Dallas, Texas. And I knew I needed to get back here because I've got some responsibilities here on Sunday morning. And fortunately, there is a new direct flight from Dallas to South Bend. Now, I believe in that flight. (laughs) But the only reason I am in South Bend this morning is not because I believe in that flight. There was a point at which I believed on the plane. I can, st- I can believe that there is a flight from Dallas to South Bend all day long. That never gets me to South Bend. The only thing that gets me to South Bend is getting on the plane, depending on the plane, relying on the plane. You know what's ridiculous about this whole thing? I have no idea who actually flew the plane. He could have been a drug addict. He could have been a terrorist. 
at some point I had de- I had to depend upon another person's ability to get me where I could not go by myself. And so Standing on the runway, just believing in the plane doesn't get me to South Bend. The only thing that gets me to South Bend is believing on the plane and the pilot who had the ability to get me here in a way that I had no ability to get me here. The same is true of saving faith. It is only saving faith, believing on, depending on, relying on, trusting in the work and the ability of Christ alone that gives me access to all of the grace that God has for me. Okay, you can believe in God's grace. You can believe in the existence of God. You can believe that Jesus died upon the cross. You can believe the whole Bible. But if you never put your weight on it, it does nothing to give you access to God's saving grace. Are you still a believer? Now that we've defined it with some theological precision, we've talked a lot about Martin Luther. Um, really the key figure, the, the man that God used to kind of spark the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago to bring this, theolo- this theological precision back to the church and the heart of the gospel. Now listen, let me just say this. We've talked a lot about Luther through this series. We're going to talk about him more this morning. Do you understand that Luther was a very imperfect man? And me using some illustrations about Luther does not mean that we believe everything Martin Luther believed. He had some really awful beliefs, specifically related to uh, the Jewish people. He was actually very anti-Semitic later in his writings and later in his, in his life. That's the reason we're not Lutheran because we don't want to trust in any man. Every man has flawed theology, including the guy you're talking to. We don't trust in a man. But we can look back at the testimony of what happened when God broke through Luther's unbelief. Let me tell you about it. The year was... 1501, and Martin Luther was actually on a trajectory to study law, and so he went away to school at the University of Erfurt in Germany to study law. He graduated in 1505 at at the age of 21 with both a bachelor's and a master's degree. Only a few days after his graduation, he was returning home when he was caught in this horrible thunderstorm, riding his horse there was a thunderbolt, a lightning bolt that knocked him off of his horse. And Luther was a very superstitious man. He was a very spiritual man and he saw everything as having spiritual significance. And so he interpreted the lightning bolt as God's judgment upon his sin. And in that moment, he thought he was going to die. And so he cried out in sheer terror, praying not to God, but to St. Anne to spare his life. And he said, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. Spare my life and I'll enter the ministry. 
And so that's what he did. He survived that thunderstorm. Two weeks later, he announced that he was giving up his doctrinal studies in law to become a monk. His hope was that his strict studies and monastic life would be enough to ease his conscience and earn peace with God. He was obsessive. He was relentless. He was legalistic about his spiritual disciplines. In the monastery, he punished his body. He deprived himself of worldly pleasures and comforts. He slept in snowstorms, believing that somehow that would be good enough to earn him salvation. He would later write of those days in the monastery, he said, I tortured myself. I inflicted upon myself such pain, I would have killed myself with vigils, with praying, with reading my Bible and other labors. Then he said this, if any monk ever got to heaven by monkery, then I would have made it. Monkery is an awesome word. I just put that in there just because I could say the word monkery. Later, Luther would spend up to six hours a day on his knees confessing his sin. Not to God, but to his fellow monks. At one point, one of his mentors told him, man, God is not angry with you. You are angry. Don't you know that God's commands to you are to hope? He said, look here. If you're going to confess so much sin, why don't you go out of here and do some sin worth confessing? <laughs> go kill your father or your mother. Commit adultery. But quit coming here with such flumery and fake sins. Again, flumery, a wonderful word to use, <laughs> theological precision. But none of Luther's religious exercises ever brought him peace with God. It only led to intensified guilt over sin. He felt he was growing even more distant from God with every effort. And the more he sought to keep the law, the more he realized he was incapable of doing it. He only sensed God's holy anger toward his sin and never God's grace. Oh, my sins, oh, my sins, he would cry as he labored tirelessly to confess each and every one of them. Finally, in 1513, he began to teach through the book of Psalms, Galatians, and Romans. The more he studied, the less peace he had in his heart and soul. Finally, Luther had what is referred to as his tower experience. Reading through the book of Romans, and this is what he said. I had conceived a burning desire to understand what Paul meant in his letter to the Romans. The justice of God is revealed. That's a quotation from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He got so hung up on that. He said, I hated that word, the justice of God, which I took to mean that the justice by which God is just and by which he punishes sinners and the unjust. As a matter of fact, why don't we look at that verse? Skip back over to Romans chapter one. Look at verse 16. These are the verses that Luther was reading. In verse, seven, in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who, does what? Believes. believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
Verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. His translation said the justice of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now the translation says the just will live by faith. Remember our word justified? So the just or the justified shall live by faith. Luther went on and said this, although a blameless monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience and no confidence that my merit would appease God. I did not love, no, I rather hated the just God who punishes sinner. In silence, if I did not blaspheme, then certainly I grumbled vehemently and got angry at God. I constantly badgered St. Paul about that spot in Romans 1 and anxiously wanted to know what he meant. I meditated night and day on those words until at last, by the mercy of God, I paid attention to the context, which is always important when you're reading your Bible. And this is what he discovered. The justice of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just person lives by faith. I began to understand that in this verse, the justice of God, the merciful God justifies us by faith. He went on, all at once, I felt that I had been born again and entered into paradise itself through open gates. Immediately, I saw the whole of scripture in a different light. I exalted the sweetness, the sweetest word of mine, the justice of God with as much love as before I had hated it with hate. This passage became for me the gateway to heaven. What was he saying? Simply this, that we have access to God's grace not by a bunch of religious exercises, not by a bunch of moral performance and good behavior. Luther did the best he could to perform for God and it never brought a sense of peace and grace and love and righteousness. It was only when he realized that God justifies those who come to him by faith. And what happened to Luther is what must happen to every person who wants access to God's saving grace. You must lay down your attempts to appease God with performance and you must believe on the performance of Christ by faith. Not just believing in, but believing on the performance of another. What happened to Luther needs to happen to some of you today. The reason you've never felt peace with God, the reason why you can't get past the guilt and the shame of your sin, no matter how good you are, is because you have not put your faith in Christ. You are putting your faith in yourself. And it will never be accepted. You will never have access to God's grace until you put your faith in God's son. 
everybody puts their faith in something. You say there's believers and unbelievers. Really, everybody's a believer in something. Everybody's trusting something. And some people run to substitute saviors to save them, and the worst of all substitute saviors is yourself and your attempts to gain peace with God through your performance. Have you, first of all, rejected faith in yourself, and then secondly, put your faith on Christ? Only those who respond in faith get access to God's grace. Here's the second thing. Faith alone is counted as righteousness to God. Faith alone is counted as righteousness to God. And so I want you to see this again in the scripture. Romans chapter four is all about the illustration of a man named Abraham and a second illustration of a woman named Rahab in the Old Testament that Paul uses as illustrations of those who trusted not in their works, but who trusted Christ by faith. And so I want you to look here at Romans chapter four, look at verse two. It says this about Abraham, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? That's always a good question to ask when you're dealing with theological matters. That again is an illustration of our commitment that scripture alone defines for us how God justifies a person. And Paul says, just look at the Bible. You don't need Bible and tradition. You don't need Bible and religion. Just Bible is sufficient. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly by faith, it is counted as righteousness. You see, the default understanding of the human heart, if you are not informed by scripture, Something in your humanity tells you that the way that you access God's grace is by being good, by performing good works. And if your good works outweigh your bad works, then God accepts you into his family. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says it's exactly the opposite of that. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel teaches that none of my good works count toward my salvation. And for those who believe by faith alone, none of my bad works count against my salvation. What is at issue is this. What counts before God for my salvation? God doesn't count any of my good works toward my salvation. And for those who believe, God doesn't count 
any of my bad works against my salvation. What God counts is an alien righteousness, the good works of another, namely the only one who was righteous, Jesus Christ. So the question is this, are you putting your faith on your good works or are you putting your faith on Christ's good works? Now listen, most of you are way too good to say, oh, certainly I trust Christ. But the question is this, are you counting and trusting in Christ alone? Any attempt to add your good works to Christ's good works actually diminishes Christ's good works and actually nullifies saving grace. It is faith alone that God counts toward righteousness. But most people say, well, I better go to church today. I better read my Bible. I better be nice to people. I better give some money in the offering. I better not hurt people. And I, for goodness sake, we, we've, we better get baptized. Again, one of the things that Luther was protesting against were all these religious ceremonies that the church had added to faith. One of those, probably the most prominent one because it's so visible, we see people baptized and we think, well, that's probably how you get access to God's grace. And that's probably how, I mean, it's very obvious you're washing away sin in there. I'm telling you, I'm looking in here, there's crud in the bottom of this. There, there is, you are gonna be dirtier after your baptism than you were before. You don't, wa not, that didn't wash away anything. And yet, the church so often wants to add ceremonial religion to faith alone. That's what the Roman Catholic Church had done years ago and still does today. Here's the Catholic Catechism. Holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. The gateway to life in the spirit, the door which gives, that gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin and reborn as the sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through water in the word. What does the scripture say? We gain access to grace through faith alone. Faith alone is counted righteousness before God. Baptism doesn't count towards salvation. Now careful, because you can fall into the other side of the ditch too. We don't want to minimize baptism to the point that we don't understand its significance. What we do when we exercise the, the sacrament of baptism, the ordinance of baptism, points to our faith. We call that the profession of our faith. It is through believers' baptism that we are displaying to the world we believe that Christ alone has done everything necessary to give us salvation. 
And so, yes, in baptism is important. And listen, it, it was a wonderful testimony hereby. I think his name was Adam. Did you hear what Adam said? He said when he was an infant, he was baptized. That somehow thinking probably some godly parents that loved him and wanted him to have the access to the kingdom and believe, they, wanted, they, he loved, they loved him so much they wanted him to have access to grace. And yet maybe through a misunderstanding of what baptism does, baptism always points backwards to our faith. And so believers' baptism is something that's so important. What we say is this, we need to make sure our baptism is on the right side of our salvation. And if you, some, you, did, you got baptized or whatever you want to call it when you were an infant or six years old or 12 or whatever, and then at some point you have had an experience like Luther. You were born again. You were regenerated by the Spirit of God. You were saved. You were justified. Well, now, as a believer, you need to be baptized because that is the only baptism that the Bible knows anything about. Is a believer pointing backwards to his conversion, to his justification. And if you've not yet been baptized as a believer, then I would invite you to come at the end of this service to one of our pastors and say, you know what? What Adam did, I need to do that. Baptism is the profession of faith. Baptism adds nothing to your salvation, but it tells the world that by faith, you are trusting Christ alone for your salvation. That's what we believe about baptism. And we need to understand that that's what God counts towards salvation, our faith alone. You have to mention this verse, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Again, reaffirming, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Do you notice there's nothing about baptism in that verse? And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What's the gift? Is the grace the gift of God or is it the faith that's the gift of God? Answer? Both. Do you know that your faith is actually a gift of God? If it's anything other than a gift of God, then faith becomes a work. And so we receive both the grace and the faith. You're like, why? That's why we sang earlier, God, give me faith. Because we realize it's a gift. And we don't even have enough faith to believe it. So God, you gotta give me both the grace and the faith and your grace is accessed through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one would boast. We got nothing to cheer about, about how strong our faith is. And so we understand faith alone works. You said, I, I thought you said um, it's not a result of works. That's exactly what the scripture says. Faith and grace is not a result of works. But still in Ephesians 2, the very next verse says this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good 
works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you see the relation of faith and works? We must affirm that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, but please hear me. The faith that saves is never alone. The faith that saves always produces good works. The evidence that you have genuine saving faith is that you have genuine good works that you have been changed by grace through faith and now you're never the same. Faith always produces good works. Saving faith always transforms your attitude towards sin. And saving faith is always accompanied by repentance. Keyword. You know, I keep referring to the, the, the moment when Luther nailed those 95 theses to the Wittenberg door. 95 articles, 95 protest. But do you have any clue what any of those 95 things said? We keep talking about them. It's like, yeah, I was, I was wondering if you might get around to telling me what some of those were. Let me just give you the first three. Number one, this is what he said. When Jesus said, repent, he meant that the whole life of believers is to be one of repentance. Saving faith always produces a life of repentance toward sin. And it's not a one-time act the moment you got justified. It is your attitude to turn away from every known sin in your life every day in the moment that you commit it. The, the evidence of saving faith is an abundance of repentance and an attitude toward repentance toward sin, and it's not just an attitude. Thesis number two, repentance is not to be understood as an outward sacrament administered by priest. You see, in the Catholic Church, they've replaced the word repentance with penance. You know, you gotta do some spiritual push-ups and say some Hail Marys and kind of do some good things to make up for the bad things. That's not repentance. That may be penance, that's not repentance. Repentance is this, he said. Repentance, number three, is not only an inward attitude but produces outward evidence of dying to self. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. As a matter of fact, there's some troubling scripture over in the book of James. Would you like to turn to it? If you've got your Bible, just turn over to James chapter 2 because James had some things to say about the relation of faith and works. And if you just skim along the surface, you might even think that James contradicted Paul. Some of the reformers loved faith so much, they didn't even want to put James in the Bible because of what I'm about to read to you. This is what he says, James chapter 2, verse 14. James asks a question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
question. Can that faith save him? And the obvious answer is no. James was identifying a kind of faith that can't save. And the kind of faith that can't save is a faith that doesn't ever produce any change. It doesn't produce any good works. It doesn't change a person. The only assurance you can have that you are saved is that you have been changed. And if your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. He went on and said this, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You still wanna say you're a believer? Raise your hand, I'm a believer, I'm a believer. I've got every right to look at you and say, show me your good works. Prove it. The assurance of your salvation is that you have been so radically altered by the grace of God, you can't have the same relationship with sin that you once had. Because James says, your faith is dead apart from works. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. If your faith hasn't changed you, your faith hasn't saved you. No works, no faith. No repentance, no faith. No sanctification, no justification. No holiness, no heaven. No transformation, no salvation. No change, no assurance. Faith works from a position of justification. Now, religion does the opposite. Religion works for a position of justification. And God says, that doesn't count. Religion obeys to obtain acceptance from God. Faith obeys because it has been accepted by God. Faith is always accompanied by good works. And the troubling thing that James understood and every faithful gospel pastor understands that there will be millions of people sitting in church this morning who have been deceived by a dead faith that has not fundamentally altered the way they live. We are saved by faith alone. But the faith that saves always produces a transformed life. And if you can walk in and out of the doors of church 
with your integrity and your sobriety and your chastity and your ministry and walk out of here and have the same relationship to sin as you once had, you should have no assurance that you have genuinely been saved. You still an unbeliever? Are you still a believer? Listen, what must you believe in order to be saved? The first thing that you must believe is that you need to be saved. The reason why some people have never been saved is because they've never believed they were lost. They've, they've always thought they're too good to go to hell and they're counting their good works, which God is not counting, and they're looking at how minimal their bad works are, which God is not counting, and he's looking at one thing, righteousness. And do you have a righteousness you cannot produce in yourself? Still, in, still a believer? Listen, my, my goal is not to try to produce doubt in your life unless you're an unbeliever. And if you've never been saved and somehow you're sitting here deceived and numbed into thinking that you are a believer when you are not, it is my goal to produce doubt in your life so that you would lay down your good works and your faith in yourself and trust in Christ alone, by grace alone, and be saved. And then to profess your faith through baptism. Has that happened for you? I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Nobody looking around. I'm asking the question, are you a believer? Do you have genuine saving faith? How can I know? You can know because of the radical alteration in your life toward God, toward self, toward sin. Doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but it does mean that your entire life is gonna be characterized by repentance your heart is grieved over sin, that you love Christ, you pursue holiness. And from the point of justification, there was an ongoing, lifelong pursuit of holiness through, just, through sanctification. Listen, if that does not characterize you, no matter how often you've been in church, no matter how much Bible you know, no matter how many times you've been baptized, It is faith alone that gives us access to grace alone. Would you just lay down all of your self-righteousness, all of your man-made attempts to gain peace with God? And in this moment, from your heart, believe that what Christ did on that cross was good enough and that God would count his righteousness as belonging to you by faith. I want you to stand with me again, heads bowed, eyes closed.
nobody looking around. We're gonna, we're gonna sing in just a moment as an expression of our faith. But again, would you bow your head, close your eyes, and I wanna give you an opportunity right now to receive grace through faith. I can't do this for you. I would love to do it for you. I can't do it for you. Your mama can't do it for you. Your priest can't do it for you. There is a decisive moment where we move from unbelief to belief. It's not a lifelong process. There is a time and a point in which God justifies an unbeliever granting grace through faith. And this may be your decisive moment. Would you just simply pray if you've never received Christ by faith, just tell God, God, I lay down faith in self and I lay hold of Christ's righteousness by faith. I repent of dead faith. I repent of my bad works. I turn my back on my good works. And I trust you by faith. Now listen, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I wouldn't embarrass you. Nobody's looking around but me. But if in this moment you would say, this is it. This is my decisive moment. I am moving from unbelief to belief. It doesn't mean I'm not going to have a doubt. It doesn't mean I'm not going to have to fight for faith at times. But in this decisive moment, I am moving from unbelief to belief. If you just did that in this moment, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Would you just raise your hand? Stick your hand way up in the air. Let that kind of be the first moment of a profession of faith. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you, thank you. This is my decisive moment. I am moving from unbelief to belief. Thank you, you put your hands down. Now listen, everybody look up here. We're gonna sing a song. It's gonna be the close of the service. Pastor Tyler's down here, Rick and Linda are here, Nathan, Greg, Angie. There's people here ready to just welcome you into the family. You say, why do I have to go down there? I thought faith is like a private thing. Listen, faith is a personal thing. It is never a private thing. And so I want to invite those of you that just raised your hand. Would you leave your seats? Come down here and let this be your profession of faith and say, I want the world to know I just moved from unbelief to belief in Christ alone, by faith alone invite you to come even during this song you come right now we're gonna not gonna wait long but let's courageously profess faith in Christ if this was your decisive moment I want to invite you to come down let's sing